Good morning, church. You may be seated. You may be seated. My name is Kendrick. I'm one of the pastors here at Calvary Church, and he is perfect in all of his ways. That is an awesome introduction to... Um, my computer's dying, so we have some little hiccups here. Uh, that is an awesome uh, just introduction as we go into the study of the Word this morning. We're going to be uh, continuing our study of looking at the heart of Christ. We're going to be looking at a servant song. So in the book of Isaiah, there's these four passages, and sometimes they're referred to as uh, the servant's song. We're going to be looking at number four, the suffering servant's song. Um, each of these uh, passages, they tell us a little bit about who the Messiah is. They tell us about the work that he did, both of which are perfect in every way. And so today, as I said, we're going to be looking at, servant, at the servant song number four. It's found in Isaiah chapter 52, and it's the end of 52, and it's all of chapter 53. And as we walk through this passage this morning, my guess is you will realize that you are more familiar with this passage than you think. This passage is quoted or referenced over 33 times in the New Testament. It's in all four of the Gospels. Um, we know that Jesus quotes from this passage. We also know that this is the passage that the Ethiopian eunuch was reading when Philip showed up and he explained it to him. Paul quotes from this passage to explain his mission, to explain his ministry to the Gentiles. So the New Testament is littered um, with references and quotes from this passage we're going to look at today. Uh, this fourth servant song, it is a uh, prophetic beautiful picture of the gospel, but it also gives us a glimpse into the heart of God. It talks about that he is wise, that he's a priest, that he's a sacrifice, that he's a servant, that he's a sufferer, and that he's a conqueror. And if we're not careful, we can overlook something that is so, uh, so amazing, something that is so uh, encouraging, something that will give us peace and comfort in our most challenging times. And as we look at that passage, if we go to the very end, the song also tells us that the servant is somebody who intercedes for us, that he's an intercessor. He is the channel of God's grace to sinners. In him, the holiness of God and God's mercy are perfectly reconciled. Not just in the past when Christ went to the cross, but he is interceding right now at this present time for all those who have come to him. And I don't want to lie to you because when we start thinking about the Holy One, we start thinking about God uh, interceding for us, when we start talking about God praying for us and that he knows who we are, that starts to get us a little bit excited, or it should. If you have a pulse, if you know who Jesus is, you should feel pretty alive right now. Well, this is called the suffering servant for a reason. And as we walk through this passage, it's going to tug at our hearts um, a little bit. It's going to challenge you a little bit. But I think at the end, we will see how awesome God's heart is. And that's where I want to end up today. This is a long passage, so we're going to go ahead and get started. I'm going to start in chapter uh, 52, verse 13. And we'll see that it begins with the servant being exalted. Verse, th verse 13 begins, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, 
so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. And it is this passage that we see that Paul quoted in Romans, and he used this passage to justify his mission to the Gentiles. Right? The, the Gentiles are those who uh, have never heard, but they will understand. The suffering servant is not just representative of Jews, but he is also representative of Gentiles. And now Gentiles being anybody who isn't a Jew, we can sum this up, that the suffering servant represents everybody. But before the servant can be exalted, we have to look at what he must endure. First, the Jesus was despised and he was rejected by men. Follow along me, uh, 53 verse 1. Who has believed that he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of the dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. And we see that this passage is is quoted by the disciples in the book of John. After so many people had witnessed Jesus' miracles and they had heard him teaching, they didn't believe he was the Son of God. They didn't believe he was the Messiah simply because he was obscure and unoppressive in physical stature. That's just dumb. right? That's like high school rationale right there. And have you ever felt rejected or ignored or felt like everybody was turning their back on you? Well, Jesus can relate to you. Because here we see that Jesus is walking on water. He's healing people of diseases. He's casting demons out with one word. He's teaching with authority that these people have never heard before. And the people are like, big deal. I, I, I could probably do that if I really tried or if I wanted to. You know, call me when you can bench press a bus, then you got something special. And then we go through this. We see not only was Jesus rejected by man... But he was stricken by God, and he was pierced. He paid the penalty for our transgressions. And although he was sinless, God laid upon him all of our sins. As we continue in verse 4, it says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned, everyone, to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the inequity of us all. And we see that this is, uh, Matthew quotes this passage. We see it after Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law, after he had cast out demons, after he had healed more people that were sick, Matthew uses this passage to point to Jesus. That this is the one that Isaiah talked about. This is the suffering servant that we have studied all our lives. This is the one who would take our illness and bear our diseases. Right? Our illness and our diseases are our sin. He would literally take upon our sin upon him on the cross so we could be healed. As a parent, when your child is sick or hurting, 
How many of you have said, man, I wish that was me and not them? I wish I could take their place in that pain. I wish I could take that suffering. I wish I could switch with them my own child. Well, God did a couple things. One, it was his own child that he put the pain on because in God's sovereignty, he could do that to protect his other children, to protect the sons and daughters. He literally went in the place. He took the pain. He paid the price for us. He was able to do that and take away the sting of death from his sons and daughters. Now listen to this next part. This is the part that you're probably familiar with where Philip uh, runs into the Ethiopian eunuch who was reading this. In verse 7, it says this, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before his shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people." And as Philip explained to the Ethiopian, by his suffering, Jesus received the punishment that we, his people, that we deserved, and he became for us the ultimate sacrifice. He became the lamb. He was the lamb who remained silent before the shears, and he's pointing to Jesus. This is the substitutionary atonement, his life for ours, sometimes referred to as the great exchange, his righteousness for our sins. And when Philip explained this to the Ethiopian, it was enough for him to say, man, I'm in. Where's the water? Where do I get baptized? Right? I want to be a follower of this man, Jesus, that you talk about. And then we see that Isaiah continues in verse 9. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And when we are suffering, we must keep in mind God's gracious purposes. So that we don't endure. We're just seeing he's perfect in all of his ways. And yes, we're going to suffer. Yes, we're going to have pain. But we don't need to despair if we trust that his ways are perfect. He himself bore sins in his body on the tree. He suffered that despair so that we would not have to. We would not have to face the punishment of our sin. Death was taken by Christ in his crucifixion. And now those who come to him have eternal life. The death of the servant was God's plan all along. The death of the servant was the plan that was needed to give us life. And this is awesome because here we're going to finish up this. We're going to read these last two chapters because immediately following the prophecy of the servant's death, we see Isaiah makes a startling prophecy of the servant's victory. In verse 11, it says, Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge, shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their inequities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. 
So just before this passage, we were reading about his death, and now we see in verse 11, it says, He shall be certified, or certified, he shall be satisfied. His death certified that we're good, but he shall be satisfied, right? The outcome of the servant's suffering is not regret, but it's satisfaction that we become his, right? In the servant's humiliation, in his suffering, in his pain, his mission was ultimately accomplished. Right? We were just singing about it. He is perfect in all of his ways. As we looked at last week, he reconciles humanity with God. And that was his heart's desire and victory was achieved. And at, now as the victor, he gets to divide the spoils up. He gets to divide the spoils up with the strong, those who have faith in him. Right? The imagery that we read about here is of a conquering king and he just won he just conquered and now he has the spoils and maybe he has other kings or other militaries that joined with him in his conquest and now he's won and he takes the spoils and he divides them up amongst those who are his friends amongst those who are his allies amongst those that he is numbered with and yes he identified with us and yes he justified us when he went to the cross and without question as christians we celebrate the glory of what christ did back then in his life and in his death and in his resurrection we celebrate that he saved us but i want to ask you right now do you know what he is doing right now what is he doing right now for us how are his spoils being divided what are the rewards for his victory right now He did not enter creation and suffer humanity. He did not enter creation and suffer the humiliation of the cross 2,000 years ago for your justification just so in a couple years when you die, the two of you could be friends then. He did not go to the cross and now he's just sitting in heaven twiddling his thumbs waiting for you. The servant accomplished his God-given mission not only by his death and your justification but by his life beyond death. We call that your sanctification, the process right now from when we are trying to be like God, when we are trying to be the image and reflect the image, when we are trying to become more like Christ, we call that sanctification. And just so you know, it is completely impossible for us to become like him in the absence of him. Without him in our heart, without him guiding us, there is no way that we can be like him or represent him. But through him working in our lives, through him interceding for us with the Father, when he is praying for us and he is pleading for us now, we can enjoy the spoils of war now. We can enjoy his victory now, and that is his plan to pass those out. In the book that we're reading as a church, the author, um, Dane Ortland says this, justification is tied to what he did in the past. Intercession is what he is doing in the present. And it is in this last statement that we read in the servant song that he makes intercessions for the transgressors. transgressors. I don't want you to miss this this morning. I want you to walk out of here knowing that he is not just interceding for you just like random, you're on his prayer list, but he knows you. He he knows exactly who you are. Are. He knows what you need. He knows what you're going to face when you walk out of here. He knows what you are going through. And right now, He is praying for you. Christ 
died for our sins and he rose again that we might be justified. Right? We talked about this, that we might be made right with him once and for all. And he did that on the cross. But now he is interceding for us. When we look at interceding, it means coming between two parties to reconcile their differences. So he did something in the past and he made us righteous. And then we can screw that up really fast. And he is sitting there begging, pleading with the Father, reconciling with us, interceding for us. And he is continuing to plead our case before the Father. Jesus right now is currently and always pleading our case, always pleading the case of those who have come to him and put their faith in them. He is constantly pleading our case to the Father. The present manifestation of his heart for those who come to him is his constant interceding on their behalf. This is where we can see his heart today, where we could feel his heart today. This is the manifestation. This is what we, the tangible part of his heart in our lives today is he is pleading for us. This has been argued, this has been one of the most or more neglected doctrines in the church today is the heavenly intercession of Christ. We talk about in Hebrews, this is the servant's priestly work on behalf of those that he is numbered with, on behalf of the transgressors, the sinners. In Hebrews it says the uttermost, that means like the worst of all the sinners, like you're the best of the best of sinners. And he is interceding for us. He's securing our acceptance before God right now. Hebrews tells us that the servant holds his priesthood permanently. That means forever says this, consequently he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Since he always, this is forever, this is permanently. He doesn't get tired, he doesn't forget, he doesn't leave his, his prayer sheet in the bathroom and not know how to pray for you. He is always praying for you, he's always making intercession. I love it, it says that he always lives to make intercession for them. This is not a priest that is sitting in a separate room who doesn't know you, that has received a phone call from a friend of a friend of a friend who heard that they should be praying for you and he doesn't know how to pray for you, he doesn't know what to pray for you, and he throws up some random prayer. This is the holy God of the universe praying for you. Right? He left his home and came to your town. He moved into your house. He put on your shoes. He walked 33 years in your clothes. Right, not to mention that he was God, that he designed you and created you. He knit you together in your mother's womb. He knows you. And he knows exactly how to be praying for you at this moment. He knows exactly how to be praying for you. He knows what you need. He knows how to be praying to the Father to intercede for you. And as we see from Scripture, this is his heart. To intercede for you, to be praying for you. We're going to look at a few points really quick about his heart. First one is that his heart is to intercede for transgressors. In this passage, we see this term, transgressors. The servant was sent to identify with transgressors, to be numbered amongst them. Throughout history, human history, we've been trying to define transgressors. Who exactly fits into that category of transgressors? Even in the book of Isaiah, we see that in chapter 52, transgressors refers to pagans. We see in 53, it refers to Israelites. Throughout the book, we see it refers to witnesses and hearers, insiders and outsiders. 
But as we go through Scripture, we see ultimately there is only one group, transgressors. And there's a lot of them. There's a lot of transgressors. Here's a secret. It's everybody, right? You are a transgressor. Christ Jesus came to earth to identify with us. He didn't come to identify with any certain people groups, uh, not only the people that were kind of good or good enough. He didn't come to only intercede for the people that were really, really, really bad that you think need his intercession. Right? He came, he was numbered amongst all of the transgressors, all of them. Twice, just in this passage we read, the servant comes between the sin and the sinner. It says he bears our inequities, and God rewarded the servant. Out of his anguish, he was satisfied. And God also accepted the transgressor. Many, right? Many. It's talking about transgressors. Many were counted as righteous. So God rewarded both. The servant was satisfied, and the transgressors were accepted. This should be a relief, because we don't have to guess anymore if Christ came for us. He was numbered among the transgressors. He came for them. Scripture tells us he came, he numbered, he was part of the transgressors, and that's who he came for, and now he intercedes for them. The question that we have to answer when we hear the term transgressors, when we hear the term sinners, do we think of that as them, or do we think of that as us? That is the question that we have to answer. That's where do we place ourselves? Are we transgressors or are we not? I love how Charles Spurgeon, he answered a similar question in one of his sermons. And he said this. It's a long one. Bear with me, but I love this. He says, oh, says one, I am a sinner, but, but, well, what but? If you be a sinner, you are commanded to trust Christ this morning. Oh, but. I will have no but, sir, no but, whatever. Are you a sinner, yes or no? If you say no, then I have nothing to say to you. Jesus Christ came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. If you are a sinner, to you is the word of salvation sent. And the man says, but I have been a thief. Well, I suppose a thief is a sinner. But I have been a drunkard. Well, a, a drunkard is a sinner. But I have been an unclean liver. Well, you are a sinner then. But I have such a hard heart. Well, to have a hard heart is one of the greatest sins in the world. Ah, but I am unbelieving. Well, that is a sin too. You come in under the list of sinners. When we look at this message, when we look at this passage of the fourth servant song, it is for transgressors. It is for all transgressors. All they, right, all we have to do is to admit that that's what we are. We just have to admit that we are sinners. As good as we think we are, as good as we want to be, we are still transgressors. And Jesus was numbered among us, and Jesus came for us. And his heart is to intercede for you. It is also his heart to intercede for those who trust him. It is his heart to intercede for those who trust him. Scripture tells us in 1 John, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. He's writing to a church, not a bunch of kids. My little children, I am writing 
these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So the question is, when we look at this, is do we trust him as our advocate? Do we trust Jesus to stand before the, the, the judge, to stand before the Father, to stand before the God and advocate for us? Or do we think we have a good defense? Do we think, yeah, Jesus, I got this. I'm really not that bad. I can do my own argument. I'm a, actually a pretty good person. I like to help people. I do more good than bad most of the time. So if we want to pull out the scales, right, here's the problem. Any bad disqualifies you. So that's not a good argument if there's any bad in there. You know, you, you may say, well, well, I know God. And for the most part, I love him with most of my heart. I love him with most of my mind, and, and sometimes I even love him with parts of my soul. And when we hear that, God did not ask for most. He asked for all. You are, again, disqualified. Right? When we screw up, do we blame the devil, the demons, our friends, our upbringing? Maybe we even blame our parents for the dumb things that we do, and so we are completely uh, justified if we stand before God and we can point the finger at everybody else around us. We can blame everything else in the world and say, God, this is not me. It is not my fault. Do we trust that we can make a good defense before the Father? I don't know if you've ever heard this adage before, but it says, counsel who argues for themselves has a fool for a client. That would be no more truer than you standing before the Father thinking you've got something to offer. A counsel who argues for themselves has a fool for a client. Or do you trust the servant? Do you trust the suffering servant? Do you trust Jesus Christ to be your advocate? And he has a unique defense. He doesn't get up there and he doesn't start shifting blame. He doesn't start making excuses the way that we tend to operate. He calmly just points to his scars. He calmly starts talking about the payment that was paid and the the cross and the humiliation of the crucifixion. He talks about the suffering on the cross. And he said, they've done all that stuff. And guess what? It's been paid. Jesus can literally say, like, talk to the hand. And do we trust that is all that we need? In this passage we just read, this song declares that it is. That that's all that we need, that the servant intercedes for others, bearing their punishment and afflictions. And in the end, we find out that not only is he satisfied, but that we were made righteous. That was all it took. Do you trust that the servant was enough? Or do you think that there's, he needs your help, that you can add something to that defense. Because here is the truth. That currently, that at this moment, that right now, he, the servant, is interceding for those who have surrendered to him. When we come to the point of starting to acknowledge our sins, that we start understanding that we are transgressors. And maybe you've heard that saying, hey, you don't need to be offensive when sharing the gospel because the gospel is offensive enough. That's what it's talking about. People do not like to be told that they are sinners. People do not like to be told that they are not perfect. 
That's not just a teenager thing. That is an all-people thing. That is offensive. And then we realize that we don't stand a chance in front of the judge. Right? When we start to see this, then our first response is, you know what, I need to clean myself up before I go to the king. I need to make things better. I need to fix my life. Yes, I'm dependent on Jesus to argue my case, but he needs my help. He needs me to put on a suit, make sure my tie is straight, cut my hair. He needs me to help him out in just a little bit. So I'm going to help him. And when we do that, what we're saying is we really don't trust his defense. And we start thinking about all these what ifs. And we think that we can help our case if we would just simply clean ourselves up. Just let me do a few things. Let me get a little bit better before I go and see my advocate, before I go and see my, my counsel, before I go and see Jesus. Let me just take care of a few things in my life. And this is natural. This is natural for us to think and for creation to get stuck in this. And many of us hold on to ourselves and fall further and further and further away from God before we fully submit to the fact that he came to us because we couldn't go to him. That he had to come to us because there was nothing that we could do to go to him. So he came to us. As I said before, we can never get to him. We can never go to him. We can never be in the presence of him without him. He has come. He came to us to be our advocate. So he came to you. Pastor Dane Ortland, again, he's the author of the book that we're reading at this church. He said it this way. It is the most counterintuitive aspect of Christianity that we are declared right with God, not once we begin to get our act together, but once we collapse into honest acknowledgement that we never will. Jesus summed it up even shorter. Jesus said it this way. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. Man, he's just waiting. He's just waiting for us to surrender and come to him. And when we identify with the transgressors that Jesus came to save us, right? we are part of the transgressors. We are part of the ones that he was numbered with. We are part of the ones that he came to save. And we say, yeah, that's me. And we trust Jesus when he said it is finished. We trusted him. He took care of it all. It is done and we surrender our lives to him. And now we know that we have life. Not when we die. We can experience eternal life right now. We can experience peace right now. We can experience joy right now because he is interceding for us right now. He is right now at this very, very moment. He is defeating every accusation that Satan is making about you. Satan is telling you that you are not good enough. And Jesus is saying, yeah, he's righteous. Right? He's telling you right now, your, your sins from last week, they're unforgivable. And Jesus said, it's finished. Right? They're forgiven. Satan is saying, man, he doesn't love God with all of his heart, mind, and soul. And God said, I know, that's why I sent my son. Satan is saying, look at your marriage. Right? Your marriage needs some work. It hardly glorifies God. And God's like, have you read Hosea and Gomer? 
Like, I got a plan for this. I know these people. Satan, the same man, his attitude at work, it's not saintly. Yeah, you're right. Just so you know, Satan at this very moment is using your cell phone as exhibit A. And he's going before Christ right now, and he's like, hey, God the Father, look at his calendar. Look at these last five websites. Look at these texts with his friends. Look what he's saying about this person, that person. Oh, look what he's saying about your bride, the church. Look how he's spending his money. And Satan's just pulling out your phone and throwing this before everything. Throwing this before the courts. But Paul reminds us. Paul reminds us. In Romans, Paul writes this. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who at the right hand of God. Who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. And so as Satan accuses, Jesus intercedes. As Satan throws doubt into your mind, Jesus is interceding. And knowing Jesus, knowing that God is all-powerful, knowing that it is God who loves us, knowing it is God's desire to intercede for us, to make things right between us and the Father, to know that he is praying for us, that he is pleading for us right now, this should absolutely change your world. To know that God Almighty is praying for you, that God Almighty is interceding for you. This should sustain us when we are weary. It should provide us peace when we are unsettled. It should give us hope when despair is all that we see. It should provide us comfort when we don't know what the heck is going on. And it should provide us joy in the midst of our weeping to know that Christ Jesus is praying with us, that he's in the middle of it, that he is pleading with the Father right now. He is in the midst of whatever we are going through. He's in the middle of it with us right now, and he is praying for you. He is interceding for you. We know that the servant came and he suffered for you, and he died for you, and he was victorious. He was victorious. His ways were perfect. In his victory, he is satisfied, and we are rewarded with the spoils. He is gathering those that he was numbered with, those that he represents, and he is passing out the spoils of eternal life. He's passing out the spoils of joy in your life right now. He's passing out peace and comfort to those that he was numbered with, to those that have completely surrendered to him. And we're just going to end this service. We're going to end this service with a song inviting you to come to the altar. And I just want you to take a moment this morning. And for some of you, this may be the most important moment of your life. If you have never trusted Jesus for your life, you've never seen yourself as a transgressor, and you're like, oh, that's everybody, that's, that's me, and we've never made that connection before. Man, trust Jesus with your life today. I want to encourage you to trust him today, to mark that day. If you've been wrestling with, I don't know, it's foggy. It may have happened six years ago. It may have happened yesterday. I'm not really sure. Let's mark a date on a time that you said that Jesus is not only my Savior, but he's my Lord, and I want to uh, follow him. 
You know, all you need to do is acknowledge that you're among the transgressors, right? That he was numbered with you, that you were in his group. And you need to believe that his death was sufficient for your sons, for your sins, and that God raised his son from the dead. And you trust that that's enough. You trust that that is enough to restore your broken heart, to restore your sinful heart. If you have never done that before, I want to beg you, I want to plead you with you that you do that. Maybe you've already trusted God. And guess what? Everybody has something they're holding on to. Everybody has something they have yet to surrender. And whatever you are holding on to that you think will help Jesus save you, right? Whatever you're holding on to that just in case the Jesus thing doesn't work out, you've got something. Surrender that, right? Let it go. Maybe it's your pride. Maybe it's your savings account. Maybe it's your relationships. Maybe it's your family. Maybe you're banking that your family will be good enough, that you will raise a good family, and Jesus will say, well, you're horrible, but your family's good, so you can come in. Right? Maybe you're hoping on your reputation. Maybe your politics or your brains or your, your job. There's only one thing that matters. Jesus and complete surrender to him. Oswald Chambers said this, and we're going to end with this. He said, true surrender will always go beyond natural devotion. And then he said this, beware of stopping anywhere short of total surrender to God. Most of us have only a vision of what this really means, but have never truly experienced it. Gosh, what do you need to surrender? What do you need to come to the altar today? What do you need to come to him today? What do you need to surrender today? And I know you're nervous. I know you're scared. You're thinking, well, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I can go in public. I'm not sure I, I know what it is. I'm not sure what God would have me do. Guess what? He's praying for you. Right? He's interceding for you. He knows what's on your heart. He knows what you are struggling with. It's not a secret to him. And who cares about the rest of the people in here? Right? He is praying, and you should want to pray with him. And I, I hope that this church would want to pray with you and encourage you. So as we sing, just take a moment and think about what you need to surrender to Christ Jesus. Dear my Father, we just... Uh, we just come before you with just humbled hearts. And as you start to work in our heart, as you start to show us things, Lord, I would just pray for those that you are calling to them, that they would have the courage to come forward, that they would have the courage to say, I want to be a follower of Jesus, that they would have the courage to, to show the world that they are followers of Jesus. And Lord, I pray for the other people in here, the people that are trying to follow you, the ones that are trying to be disciples and they're holding on to something, their heart is divided. I pray you would help them with their unbelief. As they would claim, and as I would claim, I believe, we have parts of unbelief that keep us holding on to things. And Lord, I would just pray that you would help us with our unbelief, that you would give us the courage to surrender. Lord, that you'd give us the courage to live in a way that if you don't exist, if the resurrection isn't real, we are the biggest fools on the face of this earth. But Lord, we know. We know the risen Savior. We know that we are saved. We know that you, we are restored. And we know that you are praying for us at this very moment. And Lord, we are so grateful for all of those things. Lord, as we close this last song, I pray that you would stir the hearts to come to you, 
and surrender to you for you are worthy of it all. Lord, we love you and we thank you. Amen.